Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13 in our study of the War of the Ring. I know nominations are rolling in for our next book. Uh, very excited. It's kind of wide open, actually. We've had some, uh, you know, there have been some times when going into an election, you know, I kind of had a good feeling for it. Like, all right, you know, I think this, there's been momentum building behind this one. I think it's time. Uh, and I'm not really, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. So, um, we'll, uh, uh, we'll see how that, I mean, I have a suspicion what our next book after the next one is, right? We never do two. I have one author in a row. So our next one will be a non-Tolkien book after that. I have I have my guesses about what's going to come next. By the way, on that subject, uh, so there have been um, uh, there have been uh, some uh, some confusion. I think on the discussion board, some people have nominated uh, the end of the Third Age, which is the the last sort of slim volume uh, in the boxed set of the history of the Lord of the Rings uh, set, and some have been uh, nominating Sauron defeated. Uh, the end of the third age is actually a subset of Sauron defeated. It was, uh, uh, the first chunk of Sauron defeated is dedicated to the very end of the history of the Lord of the Rings. Um, he just like, didn't squeeze it all into the Lord of the Rings. Christopher didn't. Um, but in order to be able to package the box set, they extracted that bit and published it as a little thin bit. So, um, so there's no need to vote for, uh, or to nominate, um, the end of the third age, that little slim book, because it's 100% contained, uh, in, uh, Sauron defeated. So a nomination for the, uh, uh, for, for the end of the third age is, is, is basically will be sort of taken as a nomination for, uh, uh, Sauron defeated, which contains not only the end of the third age, but also the notion club papers, which is pretty fun. Um, <clears throat> anyway, okay. All right. So, uh, and, uh, Yana, I'm not sure. I, you know, I always, um, I usually kind of stay away during the nomination process. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, bias the process there. Uh, so I usually don't hear about it until the votes are starting to come in for finalists. Uh, so, uh, so I'm not sure. We'll have to see. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, Nancy, it is a little bit confusing, the whole end of the third age thing. Um, I, I get it. Like, or I, I can only imagine Harper Collins. Um, kind of being frustrated with Christopher Tolkien as obviously they wanted to be able to package a like buy the history of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's obviously going to be the best selling subsection of the history of Middle Earth series, right? I mean, they've probably been waiting for him to get around to this bit forever, ever since he started, you know, Book of Lost Tales. Uh, And then here he does this and he just like includes... I mean, it's like a quarter, maybe a fifth of Sauron defeated is like the last bit. It's just, uh, I'm sure they were a little bit frustrated with that. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't think we're actually going to do the index volume. I'm not sure that I'm going to have too much insightful to say. There have been, a lot of people have been joking about that. Uh, that we'll do that because there is a separate volume 13 of the history of middle earth series is the, is the index of the whole series. Uh, and, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to do that one. Uh, but, um, anyhow, anyway, so. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see uh, if uh, it probably will get nominated. I agree. I'm not saying it won't get nominated. I'm just saying I don't think uh, I don't think we're actually going to go there. Anyway, all right. Um, so 
One really quick um, uh, and urgent um, announcement, and that is tonight is May 30th, tomorrow is May 31st, and May 31st is the deadline to register for MythMoot. Um, so we've had a, we had a bunch of registrations come in today, which is really good. I hope those keep uh, coming in. We're, we have over 100 people coming uh, to MythMoot this year. Uh, it is going to be awesome fun, so uh, I just wanted to make sure that, that everybody knows uh, the bell is tolling tomorrow. So um, anyway, so that's going to be uh, really great. So please do... Um, uh, remember to register. Um, if you can't come for the whole time, you can come for part of the time. A bunch of people are registering for one day or two day. We have like a one day package and a two day package uh, for people who uh, 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 can't stay for the whole weekend. Though, you know, like the awesomeness goes through the whole time, obviously, but uh, better to have you for part of the time than none. So, uh, uh, you know, that's always, that's always great too. So anyway, all right. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I see Stephen. You know, Stephen, people have been threatening to nominate Twilight ever since we started doing this. You know, when I when I first said I'll do any book that gets elected, Twilight was always the very first thing. Like, oh yeah, what happens if Twilight gets ele- elected? And I will say again what I've been saying now for five years. I dare you. I would totally do it. I actually, of course, you know, like we did Dracula, right? Uh, and my own, uh, uh, you know, sort of interest in studying Dracula and my love for that book uh, has spawned, uh, <clears throat> you know, an interesting kind of, uh, uh, um, uh, not a hobby exactly. I'm not sort of passionate enough about it to make it a hobby, but I have an interest in vampire stories and in vampire films. Um uh, mostly, you know, uh, uh, noticing how much they're not quite as good as Dracula. But, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. And the goodness knows there are plenty of horrible things about Twilight, but we could talk about it. It wouldn't take, uh, 17 sessions, but we could talk about it. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, Oh, Stephen, oh, if it gets elected, we're watching the film. Not all the films. We'll, we'll watch the first. With, of course I'm going to make you watch the film. Look, if you guys elected, you have only yourselves to blame. Don't look at me. Uh, but no, absolutely. We'll go there. I, I'm telling you, we'll go there. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, let us get back uh, to the text here. We've got some really fun thing. Tonight's class is called On Black Wizards, Woeses, and Parenting. Um, and uh, I'm especially excited to look at Denethor tonight. To me, for me, Denethor was the most exciting story. There are lots of other little stories, um, you know, within the development of the story here today. Of course, tonight we're talking about the Siege of Gondor chapter and the Ride of the Rohirrim chapter. Um, we're going to focus more on the siege um, than um, uh, uh, we're going to focus more on the siege than we're going to focus on uh, uh, the Ride of the Rohirrim, but um, but and, and especially, as I say, I'm, I'm particularly interested uh, in Denethor, a, a really amazing moment uh, there. But anyway, let's uh, let us push on through. So, Gandalf revealed. Now, there's a lot in this. This is in one of his little outlines. And, you know, of course, many of their few surprises in these outlines, right? Of course, what, what we're seeing as we're going through, you know, this whole kind of trip through book five in the 1946 material has all been about 
not seeing the story, you know, shockingly different than what we expected as some of the early material was, um, but to see how and when uh, we get to the final versions, right? By the time, you know, he comes to the end of the drafts that we're looking at in these chapters, you know, book five is uh, is pretty close to its final form with only a couple exceptions. Um, so... So I guess it's it's not about it's not like that. There's anything in this outline that's shocking. But what's interesting, of course, is remembering back to where things came from, uh, and things kind of look a little bit different uh, once we get to them now, seeing the trajectory that they've taken in getting there. Question mark sunset a gleam far off. Gandalf says there is hope still in the west. Next day there is a council, and soon Faramir departs. Pippin has more talk with Berethil. That is he who shall be named Baragond, and hears that Faramir has gone to Asgiliath. Time passes slowly. Ill news comes on 11th March, next day, that there is a fell captain on the enemy's side. He has won the crossings, and Faramir is driven to Ramas Koran. Still the darkness grows. It is like a slow disease, thought, Pip- thought Pippin. Sometime on the ninth, Pippin must look out from the walls and see Nazgul, six or seven, flying over Pelennor, and see them pursue a few riders. But Gandalf rides out and saves them. It is Faramir, just in time. Great joy in city. Faramir sees Pippin as he comes up to the citadel and is astonished. That is, as Faramir comes up to the citadel, presumably not Pippin. Um, Okay. Several observations here. I'd be interested to hear what uh, things really jumped out at you uh, in uh, in reading this. One, Gandalf says there is hope still in the West, right? That's a really interesting note um, to be striking here and not something that we have seen uh, to this point. Interesting that Gandalf is making this kind, um, this explicit a nod uh, towards not hope from the West, but hope in the West. Is he thinking about, like we could still escape and go to the West. Is he suggesting, um, you know, that like, even if the shadow conquers, well, there's always Valinor, right? Or, uh, uh, or is he suggesting that there is hope for them in their struggle with the shadow there? Um, because they're not forgotten about from the West. Personally, I would incline to that latter. Um, the the way that he's looking out at a gleam of light coming to them, right? The shadow is is coming over them, uh, creeping forward like a disease, um, and yet the light is still shining from the west, right? And that seem that would seem to me uh, what Gandalf is probably talking about there. Um, interesting to see uh, uh, Gandalf pointing to that like that. Um, the other, of course, the big thing here is Gandalf's rescue, right? His uh, riding out. Um, to save the incoming riders uh, from the hey, just got a just got a, a, a mythmoot registration. Awesome. Um, anyway, uh, so his riding out to save uh, Faramir et al. Uh, from the Nazgul, and um, this is interesting to me for uh, several reasons. Of course. Um, it's not new, right? Gandalf riding forth surrounded by white light and driving the Nazgul away has been a feature of the siege story for quite some time. But you'll remember that one of the principal features of the uh, of the siege story ever since it became a siege story, right, uh, and ceased to be a conquest story, as it was at the beginning, um, was Gandalf not wanting to reveal himself. Remember, that's why Gandalf was standing on the wall all frustrated with the Palantir and chucking it 
down and braining people with it, right? Because he was trying not to reveal himself, even to the point where the defensive stance of the men of Minas Tirith was adopted, it seemed almost principally because Gandalf wouldn't reveal himself, right? I mean, he had to keep himself concealed. It wasn't even, to me, particularly obvious why he needed to conceal himself exactly. Um, I mean, I don't... Unlike Aragorn, who, you know, Sauron legitimately does not know who he is and the significance of him, right, until he reveals himself in the Palantir. That is, he doesn't know that the heir of Isildur still survives at all, much less that he's there, um, you know, with uh, Narso reforged and all that. Um, That's sort of the nice shock that Aragorn has for him through the Palantir. Um, So again, Aragorn is legitimately undercover, right? Is unknown to Sauron. Gandalf's not unknown, right? Is it unknown that Gandalf is returned, right? That he's come back from the dead, that he's now Gandalf the White, uh, wielding the power that he is wielding? Um... No, it can't be unknown, right? I mean, Gandalf has not been making a secret of himself. He's been going about, I mean, surely, um, even Saruman will have heard and reported about that, right? And besides, just like, it's, if it's a secret, it's a pretty ill-kept secret. And the uh, the idea that, you know, rumor or, you know, a word of uh, Gandalf the White riding through the lands and, uh, uh, you know, doing all the things that he's been doing. It's hard to imagine that Gandalf really thinks that Sauron's not going to have caught a whiff of this, right? And if he did, so what? It's just not... It was never obvious to me why Gandalf was so particularly uh, concerned about this. Um, Now, and and again, even to the point where it was pivotal in their military strategy, like they could have driven the the Nazgul army back sooner uh, than not the army of Nazgul, but the army led by and shadowed by the overshadowed by the Nazgul. They could have driven them back sooner had Gandalf revealed himself, but he didn't. Now. Gandalf reveals himself earlier, right? This is before the advance of the army. So one thing that we can see happening simply, right, is the decoupling of Gandalf's revelation or Gandalf's sort of concealment of himself, um, the decoupling of that concealment from the military decisions of Minas Tirith, right? Gandalf is already helping in sort of revelatory ways, right? Uh, Showing himself and his power to the enemy. Um, He's not being shy about that, and it doesn't change anything. I mean, maybe saves Faramir. I'm not saying it doesn't accomplish anything, but I'm saying it's it's not turning this snog. Okay, Gandalf is uncloaked. Let's ride out to victory. That's not what happens, right? That's not how it goes. Um, So, um, uh, yeah. Now, Carrie, I agree. It's I, I can see it fitting in the sense of him not wanting to seek power and glory, as you suggest, or, um, you know, that uh, it's not that that doesn't fit him, um, but that's more a question of how he employs his power rather than keeping that power secret, because the emphasis really did seem to be on secrecy. Um in particular, secrecy to to prevent Sauron from knowing that he was there or knowing the power that he had, I think. Um, uh, I, and that, to me, was made, I think, most clear when um, when he uh, um, when he, Gandalf, uh, looked in the Palantir and is revealed to Sauron and is like, dang it, 
now he knows, right? Um, when he really didn't, didn't, didn't want to. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Boomfell's asking if he's waiting for it until it's too late for Sauron to effectively counter him. Well, I don't know, because the counter would be, I mean, you're Sauron, right? And you know that Gandalf is the white now, and he's there in Minas Tirith. How do you counter it? What do you do, right? Send the Witch King, right? The Witch King is your counter. Um, if you've got an anti-Gandalf weapon, it's got to be the Witch King. Uh, well, no, hang on. First, you're going to beef him up first, right? You're going to, you're going to like, juice the Witch King, um, and, uh, and then you're going to send the Witch King out against Gandalf, because that's going to be your best bet for taking down Gandalf, right? Um, which is what he does. So... What else is he going to... I mean, he could go himself, I guess, right? Still always an option, I suppose, at the end of the day. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, the point is, Gandalf is now is no, is no longer worried about that, right? Um, Gandalf is revealing himself all over the place. Not only, remember, in this sortie against the Nazgul, repelling them with his white light, um, but even within the siege, right? When Gandalf is walking all around the city, uh, you know, uh, bringing hope where despair uh, is um, sort of oppressing all of the people, that's a revelation of himself too. You know, that is, in fact, it's like almost exactly the same thing. You could say that him walking around the city and bringing hope to the soldiers is almost exactly the same thing as him riding out of the gate and having the light surrounding him drive off the Nazgul. It's it's the same function. One is just more kind of immediate uh, and dramatic, right? And the other more abstract. But um, both of them are sort of uh, in the same way as in Gandalf takes command, right? We, we're talking about Gandalf's army, right? How, you know, uh, in some of the outlines before, he just used Gandalf as shorthand for the entire army of the West, right? Gandalf goes up to the Black Gate, presumably Gandalf and the entire army, right? Um, Gandalf was the army uh, at, at, at that point in those, uh, in those outlines. And we see here Gandalf taking command of the city, right? Gandalf is in charge of the defense of Minas Tirith after Denethor, you know, goes away, <laughs> mentally speaking, Um but, uh, so I guess mentally and emotionally speaking, um, but, um, but that's, uh, but yet it's still not Gandalf's army, uh, in the same way that it was Gandalf's army before. Um, and Carrie, I, 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 coming back to the observation that you were making, I think that we do see that more, right? Think back to that really cocky Gandalf we got, you know, delivering threats to Sauron at the parley at the Black Gate, right? Um, this is not that Gandalf anymore. Um, Gandalf has pulled back, and it's it's more about him being, um, again, sort of inspiring uh, the people rather than, um, you know, uh, leading them from the front and uh, uh, and and taking charge. Even though he is in charge of the defense, uh, even his command is uh, um, not as commanding, I guess, uh, as it was before. Uh, other things from this, oh yeah, the march thing, right? Of course, we need to draw attention to this. This is, uh, you know, as I've been saying, I'm not following along with the uh, uh, chronological uh, development 
uh, really carefully. But of course, we you may remember that these dates have all been in February uh, up to this point, and he's now shifted it forward to March, which is of course the final chronology, uh, the final calendar um, position of these events. Uh, leading up to the destruction of the ring on March 25th. Um, Now, of course, the reason for this, if you cast your mind way back to the Return of the Shadow, you may recall that um, he was... When they first went into Lothlorien, remember how he was was mucking around with time? Um, Talking about how when you went into the Elflands, like, a hundred years could pass, or no time at all could pass, and so he was actually contemplating them staying there for a while, but having no time, in fact, elapse uh, while they were in there. Um, so he wanted to, d- and that, that of course, is a traditional element of fairy. He was going to apply that uh, to Lothlorien. So um, his decision uh, to say, no, no, time doesn't actually change, right? It's going to appear to change, but time doesn't in fact change. So they're actually going to spend an honest-to-God month in Lothlorien. That's what shifts the dates forward from February into March. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And Evan, I agree. The the alterations in Gandalf's role that we see from the uh, the, the the drafts just earlier from this to uh, to these uh, does help to make the contrast between him and Saruman uh, uh, far more uh, poignant, far, poignant, far more pronounced. I agree. Um, I think that's a really good observation. Um, there was a sense, right, almost in which you could say that the Gandalf, especially the Gandalf of that, you know, the defiant Gandalf of that outline, he was almost like living living the dream, right? He was like doing what Saruman wished that he could do, uh, just defy Sauron and take him down and, uh, and uh, you know, show him who's boss. Um, and you're right, the way in which Gandalf opposes Sauron, is this is not how Saruman would do it. At all, right? And so I, I think that that's a really interesting way to think about that distinction. Okay, uh, and we get Faramir coming in, and of course the fell captain. I'm gonna, I wanna, I wanna focus on the fell captain as uh, this is one of the major things that gets uh, really developed here. The role of the uh, so there are several discoveries that Tolkien makes here in this uh, in this section, things which kind of emerge from the jumble of ideas that Tolkien has had surrounding uh, the battle here at Minas Tirith um, and really kind of come into focus as he narrows in and says, yeah, okay, yeah, no, this is, this is really the thing. This is really what happens. You'll remember the significance of the Witch King, or excuse me, Wizard King, as he still is. He's not the Witch King yet, but the Lord of the Nazgul. The significance of the Lord of the Nazgul in the battle was always there. Um, and his being killed by Eowyn has been there. Like, is Eowyn has been his bane since there's been an Eowyn, pretty much, right? That's always been her job. She was going to kill uh, the Wizard King and die. And that's been true in every single draft that we've seen where he's talked about this. The only thing that has changed with Eowyn is that she is no longer... Uh, openly at the king's side, right? The, she's there by the king's invitation. She seems to bring a passel of shield maidens, or at least offers a passel of shield maidens, which it seems like he accepts. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Eowyn had one job, and yes, it, she did do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so the you know the setup for Eowyn. 
it has been changing, right? We 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 see her in the in the in the muster of, or the, rather the the ride of the Rohirrim uh, chapter. Uh, we see her becoming Durnhelm. Uh, we see her carrying Mary. Um, Mary is going openly at first. There's that one, the sort of that weird transitional. Like at first, they're both going openly. You know, Mary's like, "Can I come?" And Theoden's like, "Yeah, absolutely." Eowyn's like, "I'm coming too," and he's like, "The more the merrier," right? And then he says, "Apparently, oh, he never. We never see him in the outline say that Eowyn can't come, but we see her coming in disguise, presumably unbeknownst to the king. But Mary can still come, right? And oh, hey, you like skinny dude over there, right? I don't know who you are, uh, Eowyn in disguise, but why don't you carry the halfling? That'd be great. So we have this weird kind of moment where she's not allowed to come and she's coming in disguise. He is allowed to come and is coming openly, but nobody knows it's Eowyn that's carrying him, presumably not even him uh, until the end. And But then, of course, we settle into the, the, the final pattern of both of them coming uh, uh, against orders uh, and together. Uh, in connection. Um, but again, at the end of the day, we're still going to the same place, right? That is, we're going to kill the Lord of the Nazgul and he's going to die or she's going to die. As far, as far as we, we've, I don't think she's lived yet. I, 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 am I misremembering this? I, I think that the Eowyn survival rate uh, is still c- zero uh, so far in any of these drafts. Um, uh, so, Anyway, but getting back to the fell captain himself, his role uh, has always been conceived as important, but uh, he's kind of coming more into focus here. So the, the, the role of the fell captain is not a discovery in the same way as Denethor's role, as we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, it's not a discovery in the sense that he, he, this, he's foreseen this all the way along, right? Um, this is just kind of one of those things, like, it's it's always been an item in the outline, right? It's always been kind of a, a point in the checklist about the battle. And as he gets closer to it, this one figure looms larger and larger. And it's really neat. Um, uh, I find it really neat uh, to see it um, to see it develop. So first we have the fell captain. Um, there is a fell captain on the... This is the ill news... Right, that there is a fell captain on the enemy side. He has won the crossings, and Faramir is driven to Ramas Koran. Now, the phrasing there with the fell captain and the fact that he's winning the crossings should remind us of the fact that Boromir won the crossings. For you know, like the the fell captain at the crossings of the river has been kind of a running thing, right? Um, the fell captain won the crossings of the river earlier on, uh, and Gondor drove him back, right? That, by the way, seems to be kind of... Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think that was in our most recent version of the Council of Elrond. I think that... that I, I, I don't remember. Somebody look it up for me. Uh, go back to the Council of Elrond in The Return of the Shadow. Look at Boromir's testimony and tell me if there was any reference to the fell captain or the crossings of Osgiliath, that sort of story that is easy to remember from the published text. Um, but the parallels are definitely becoming important, right? They're going to be explicitly made. That is the parallel, or uh, the rather unfortunate for Faramir anti-parallel of Boromir reclaiming the crossings of the river at Osgiliath by his valor and Faramir losing them, right, Uh, when the fell captain comes. Um, This kind of smells to me like a parallel which works its way backwards, right? That is, although chronologically, Faramir losing the crossings 
to the army and to the fell captain is, you know, an echo of the earlier event in the chronology of the writing. I think that the Faramir event might come first and the, the idea of Boromir having won the crossings earlier, um, it seems to me like it is emerging deliberately to be an anti-parallel. Like we're now remembering back to Boromir's valor, uh, and showing how Faramir doesn't measure up, right. Compared to his brother, Boromir totally would have held the pads, what he does. Right. Um, so putting that uh, keep up with Big Brother pressure uh, on Faramir there, um, but that f- this for the sake of that pressure seems to be why uh, how rather that earlier con- that 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 chronologically uh, within the story earlier event of Boromir uh, uh, seizing the crossings seems to have emerged. Um, if it had emerged earlier, then I'm wrong. Um, but that's how it sounds, and I don't think that anything like that detailed. Because remember, back in the Council of Elrond, it was still like the land of Ond, and and uh, it was super vague. I don't even remember that Minas Tirith had emerged yet at that point. So I'd be pretty surprised if Boromir's taking of the crossings of, uh, of Anduin uh, had already occurred. Uh, but anyway. Um, okay. Let's keep going. More about the Fell Captain. All right. Uh, so this is a later uh, outline. Okay, good. James says that story doesn't seem to be in the first drafts of the Council of Elrond. Good. Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, uh, yeah. No, good. Okay. So my memory is is uh, uh, <laughs> one for one so far. It's a good record. Okay. Here's another version of the same thing, or a slightly later version. Gandalf saves Faramir. Faramir sees Pippin at Gate of Citadel and wonders. Gandalf introduces them and takes Pippin along to Denethor's council. So Pippin hears a lot, and hears Faramir accept orders to go to Osgiliath. Denethor and Faramir marvel at Gandalf's power over Nazgul. Gandalf says things are still not so bad, because the Wizard King has not yet appeared. He reveals that he is a renegade of his own order, that is, the black, the Wizard King is a renegade of Gandalf's own order, uh, from, for something or other, for many an age, he has lain in hiding or sleep while his master's power waned. But now he is grown more fell than ever. Yet it was foretold that he should be overthrown in the end by one young and gallant. But maybe that lies far in the future. He hears about Frodo and Sam. Also, how Faramir crossed from Tolvarad, the defended isle, changed to Menfalros with three companions and came on horse. The rest of the task force, that is presumably the rest of the rangers of Athelion that he had with him over there uh, in Athelion when he met Frodo and Sam, he had dispatched to the Pelennor Gate. Last half of chapter must deal with situation after taking of Pelennor, the Battle of Pelennor, and the Fall of the Gate. Okay. Um, so... I agree... Several of you are responding um, with various levels of shock and outrage uh, at this question of him being a renegade of his own order. Um, And these, um, yeah, all of you, in fact, uh, Yana, Nancy, uh, and Stephen are all um, pointing to the same question, right? Right. Um, the shocking thing about this is, in a sense, not what it 
tells us about the 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 Nazgul, but what it tells us about Gandalf, right? Um, what does this mean? Because it kind of seems like it would have to mean one of two things, right? Either A, Gandalf is still a man and not yet a Maya, right? Or the Wizard King is not a man, right? But is a Maya like Gandalf. Um, I don't think... I don't think Gandalf is still a dude. I believe we're firmly past the days when Gandalf was a man who was a professional wizard. Um, and possibly, therefore, long-lived in some way. Uh, remember the passage which made it into the draft, this past draft that he's been working on here, the 1946 draft, um, that passage in the the first chapter of Book 5, the Minas Tirith chapter, um, when Pippin looks at Gandalf and is like, who is Gandalf? And, you know, it, it, it occurred to him to wonder, who was Gandalf anyway? When did he come into the world? Um, the fact that the narrator has Pippin wondering those things already, it's, it's, it's pretty clear Basically, this question is just occurring to Pippin. Like, Pippin has been assumed, has clearly assumed for his whole life that Gandalf is a man, right? Who uh, uh, is wizardly, right? The professional magician. Um, it finally, Pippin finally grokks the fact that, okay, this is not just a regular guy, right? Gandalf is, what the heck is Gandalf, right? He's it's, he's not... So there's Denethor over there, and he's an intimidating dude, but Gandalf is just different, right? Um, never thought of it before, uh, says uh, uh, says uh, Pippin to himself. Um, uh, anyway, so... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Pippin totally grocks it at that point, Arthur. Uh, grok is a great verb. Uh, it's a wonderful verb. I love verbs uh, that say well in one word, like a concept that would normally take you four or five words to say. Um, uh, but anyway, okay. Um, uh, it's a it's a Heinlein word. Uh, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, yeah, Yana, that is interesting. Yana says he finds it interesting that Gandalf has never been linked uh, to Bombadil. Um, that, you know, it seems like an obvious kind of connection for Pippin to make. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, it's not that Bombadil's totally forgotten about, but, but no. Yeah, that parallel, um, that parallel is never made, Yana, until Gandalf himself makes it, right? Uh, in the whole, um, you know, stone doomed to rolling speech that he makes, uh, as they're, uh, heading back towards the Shire. Um, but yeah, until then, I don't think anybody makes that connection. Um, so he's, so I think that, yeah, I, 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 I cannot imagine, especially given the fact that that passage from Pippin is in there already. Gandalf isn't a man, right? The whole resurrection thing, it's pretty, uh, I mean, it's not like there isn't precedence. Uh, uh, there is not a precedent for the whole, uh, uh, for the whole resurrection thing, but this is not that, right? So, um, 
so yeah, I, I think that uh, this does suggest that the Nazgul was something more. Um, and there's, by the way, no real reason why he couldn't have been, apart from the whole, like, nine, you know, for mortal men doomed to die, and if he wasn't, then that kind of, you know, eight for mortal men doomed to die, plus one for this other dude who is a wizard and whatever. I, I, I You know, yeah, I get that. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and this might sound strange to say. But I am not sure that Tolkien is thinking this through in that way. He, the Nazgul Lord, has been called the Wizard King before. Remember, he was called the Wizard King back in the latest version of the Bree chapters. Um, so this is a concept that's been there for a while, that uh, the Lord of the Nazgul has some kinds of like sorcerous powers and things. Um, and that he is, in a sense, Gandalf's opposite number, right? Um so that's a concept that's been kind of floating around and that Gandalf is alluding to here. So I think that what we're getting here is not in a sense a new development, right? This is a further development or uh, a slight expansion on the old idea in a sense, right? Um, which Tolkien had not really worked through uh, and we never saw him really working through that explicitly and thinking about its implications. Um, or, wait, to put it in, an, to, to, to come at that a different way, when last he drafted the Bree stuff and was calling him the Wizard King at that point in his notes, Gandalf was still kind of a dude. I mean, I think that was really before the whole resurrection thing had really gone down and Gandalf had really assumed the role and position and status that he has finally gotten to. He is, um, you know, Gandalf is now firmly past his high watermark, right? His high water, his high watermark was that defiant speech, uh, to Sauron when Gandalf was as, as high and, and powerful and rarefied, uh, as, as we'll ever see him. Um, so he's brought, Tolkien has since, since he called him the Wizard King, since he was Gandalf's opposite number, Gandalf has now developed, right? Um, so Tolkien's first impulse when having Gandalf expand on and explain who is the Thel Captain, who is the Lord of the Nazgul, is to basically go back to the earlier conception. He's the Wizard King, right? So he's a wizard, uh, and, he, and he is made explicitly a member of Gandalf's order, uh, who rebelled. Now, again, conceptually, that's fine. That works very well, right? Sauron himself is a rebel Maya, right? So, and this is exactly how it happened. In fact, like, already, sight unseen, I'm guessing that uh, the Wizard King, right, the Lord of the Nazgul, was probably the greatest of all of the wizards, right? Because it's always the greatest of all of them who falls, right? So he's probably the greatest, most, and then he was like the most arrogant and full of himself, and then he fell into evil and pride. And but I'm like, I'm, I'm guessing, right, that that's kind of probably the backstory that's lurking behind this here, right? Um, so again, it's not like this is a strange concept. The idea of like, hey, um, like, why would he have a ring of power? Well, Gandalf's going to get a ring of power. Why can't he have a ring of power, right? I, again, I, no, he's not. Uh, maybe the nine rings were designed for mortal men, but again, you know, one was kind of, uh, he was kind of grandfathered in on that uh, on that handout, so it's all fine. Um, 
anyway, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so again, in isolation, this seems fine. When you, when you start thinking back to the ring verse and, and, and thinking about the, uh, uh, the whole mortal men thing, it, it, it begins to seem kind of dubious, right? Um, and of course, it doesn't stand up either. Tolkien is gonna is gonna pitch this when he comes back to this passage. He's gonna say a different thing. Um, this is just sort of his impulse. And again, to me, the core. Um, you know, when I come back to as I keep doing, right? What is the core of this story? To me, the core of this story is that the Witch King is Gandalf's opposite number on the field, right? Um, he is he is setting that up. The 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 Lord of the Nazgul is like the anti Gandalf, right? Um, here explicitly, one of his order, he's a peer of his, uh, and uh, but he rebelled where Gandalf was true. Um, so there you go. Um, yeah, good. Um, so, oh yeah, uh, John, thanks for bringing up, John Caldwell uh, brings up that passage about him uh, sleeping. He's laying in hiding or sleep while his master's power waned. Um, I don't know what this means about the, what kind of evidence we can draw from this, John, about the time frame of the Third Age uh, in Tolkien's mind at this point. Uh, I'm not really sure. Um, Arthur, yeah, it's uh, it's possible that um, he was, like, in a tomb up in the mountains, right? Yeah, that's you can't rule out that that's, in fact, where he's been. Um, but... Um, I, notice what isn't there, Right? Angmar. There's no Angmar. Um, he Not only is he the Wizard King and not the Witch King, he's not the Witch King of Angmar because there's no Angmar, right? Um, the idea of the Ulairi, of the, 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 the Ringwraith still being in the world and active in the world even during Sauron's recuperative retreat, right, uh, is... Uh, is clearly not present yet. And it, you know, this kind of makes some sense, right? So, uh, Sauron himself is in hiding. So his, his, uh, you know, his lieutenants are going to lie low, you know, makes sense. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I agree, Yana. This obviously totally vindicates that passage, uh, of the Hobbit movies. Uh, Peter Jackson absolutely vindicated. You're so right about that. I'm glad that we could draw that triumphant conclusion (laughs) from this passage. (laughs) All right. Uh, let's 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 uh, let's come back to it again here. All right, this is uh, Gandalf to Pippin during that conversation uh, with the captains. There, you have met him, Peregrine, son of Paladin. Though then he was far from home, veiled to your eyes when he stalked the Ringbearer. Now he has come forth in power again, growing as his master grows. Gandalf now names him King of Angmar long ago, and this is the first appearance of the conception of the Kingdom of Angmar in the texts of the Lord of the Rings. To Denethor's, or can it be that you have withdrawn because you are overmastered, causing Pippin to fear that Gandalf would be stung to sudden wrath, the wizard answers lightly, softly, in The Return of the King, but after 
And after, but our trial of strength is not come yet, he recalls a prophecy concerning the fate of the Lord of the Nazgul, different from that in the brief outline given on page 26, which reminds me to interrupt our discussion of this passage with a discussion of the prophecy, which I totally skipped in the earlier passage, uh, being obsessed with the wizard thing. Hang on a second. It's worth actually scrolling back to that for a second. Uh, Yeah. It was foretold that he should be overthrown in the end by one young and gallant. Um, and I agree, uh, somebody was talking about this, but it was a while ago. Um, uh, um, let's see. I can't find it. But anyway, somebody was talking about how um, this this prophecy casts a rather wide net, right? Uh, not, uh, not as yeah, it could be pretty much anybody says Nancy, right? You know, people queuing up, right. To take a shot at the wizard King. If you just had to be young, uh, and gallant. Um, I mean, honestly, what that, what that sounds like to me, um, it sounds, this is not Shakespearean, right. And Evan, exactly as you say, um, the, 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 we're, 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 we're far from Macduff, right? Um, it may be, as Tolkien says in his letters, that the memory of his childhood disappointment with Macbeth uh, and how lame it was the way in which the prophecy about Burnham Wood and Nunsinane Hill was fulfilled is part of what inspired the March of the Ants. Um, but it is equally clear that he was not setting, he did not approach this scene with that Macbeth parallel in mind, right? Uh, because it is nowhere evident when he's talking about, when he's foreseeing the death of the Wizard King, right? In fact, this sounds to me, um, uh, 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 this sounds to me like it's in a completely different idiom. In fact, this is not a Shakespearean prophecy. Uh, this, is a, this is an Arthurian prophecy, uh, this sounds to me like the Grail quest, really. I mean, I expect Galahad to jump up and be like, obviously, this like uh, uh, this is speaking of me. Um, uh, now, obviously, again, there's no mystery about who's going to fulfill this prophecy, right? I mean, it's uh, it's like the least the worst kept secret in these in these drafts, right? Uh, we know it's going to be Eowyn. Um so. Knowing who the final fulfiller of the prophecy is going to be, it's particularly fascinating to see how he's pointing to her, right? Um, So the whole point of it here just seems to be one young and gallant, which probably lots of people are going to assume is going to be a dude. So the fact that the young and gallant and gallant person in question turns out not to be Sir Galahad or even Sir Percival or Sir Bors, but rather turns out to be Eowyn, right? The shield maiden. Um, that's, um, that's seems to be the thing that Tolkien's going for here, right? Um, so the only thing that, again, that sort of thinking of that, you know, what is the core of the story of this prophecy so far? All we get is there's a kind of a vague prophecy about how he's going to die. And the only thing that we get from this prophecy is that it's probably going to be a little bit misleading. Right. That's kind of all we have from it there. Um, 
But anyway, sorry. Going back now to the new prophecy. And if words spoken of old come true, he is not doomed to fall before warrior or wise. Change to, he is not doomed to fall before men of war or wisdom, but in the hour of his victory, to be overthrown by one who has never slain a man. Change to, by one who has slain no living thing. Okay, so, once again, right, we see, we can see what looks like the, now, just in case you weren't already assuming that the young and gallant person in mind was probably going to be masculine, right? Now the masculinity is thrown in there explicitly, right? He's not doomed to fall before men of war or wisdom. Now that's more of a puzzler, right? Well, okay, if, if it's not going to be... And it's interesting that men of wisdom is thrown in there, right? Because he's the wizard king, right? So if you, could, if you say he's not going to fall before, you know, a man of war then you could be like, oh, so it's supposed to be like a wizard's duel, right? That he's supposed to, okay, so let's trot Gandalf out there and that'll be the fulfillment of the prophecy. No, no, that's not going to work either, right? Uh, no man of wisdom. Uh, so but neither wizard nor warrior is going to take him down. Notice though he changes warrior, right? Because of course, Eowyn does kind of count as a warrior, uh, but she's not a man of war. So there you go. Um, uh, but in the hour of his victory, to be overthrown by one who has never slain a man. Which still seems to cast a fairly wide net, right? Um, now, one thing I would say... Do you know what that kind of makes me think of? Um, in the hour of his victory, he's going to be overthrown by one who has never slain a man. Um, makes it sound like he's going to die by some kind of misadventure, right? Um, the, the, the thing that I can't help but think of, which might be totally inappropriate, um, is actually the Old Testament story. Isn't it Abimelech and the Stone of Thebes? Uh, the, when Abimelech is uh, besieging the walls of the town of Thebes, and uh, he's, I think, victorious, right? But in the hour of his victory... Um, a, a woman from on top of the wall chucks a rock down and brains him with it. Um, and it's, you know, uh, embarrassing. Um, so that's kind of what I, I don't know. I don't know that that's exact, but the whole, um, you know, the irony of it being in his hour of victory and uh, not by somebody who's ever killed anybody before. Right. So we have a like non-professional soldier here. Um, but fascinating that it's it is a Bimelech joy. Thanks. Okay, I was hoping I was remembering that correctly. Um, but his shift of the prophecy to be one who has slain no living thing. So, taking into account his revisions here, his final version here is he is doomed not to fall before men of war or wisdom, but in the hour of his victory to be overthrown by one who has slain no living thing. Okay, so not men of war or wisdom, but rather by one who has slain no living thing, and that it will happen in the hour of his victory. Okay, so we have this uh, sort of the irony of his downfall when he is at his highest point, and it will come at the hands of... So he will not be overcome by one who is even greater, right? Um, so, um, okay... 
the slain no living thing is interesting. I, I don't know, Rachel, whether it like insects count, right? If you if you've ever swatted a mosquito, then you're disqualified for killing him. Um, uh, <laughs> Julie's thinking the same thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> you swat a fly and you're no longer eligible. Um, But if you think about it, and if we exempt if we if we exempt mosquitoes for now, Eowyn might qualify. As I mean, presumably she does if that's how Tolkien wrote the prophecy. Um, but if you think about it, one of the challenges actually is c- killing animals. Really common, right? I mean. Most anybody who has cooked a meal has, you know, broken the neck of a chicken, right? Or cut off the head of a chicken in order to prepare that meal. Uh, You know, so like farm wives slay living things on a regular basis, right? Um, But of course, Eowyn presumably has never cooked her own meal, right? Um, So she's a noble woman who would not have to be butchering anything. So she's, there's... Unless she's been hunting, which she may not have been, uh, then, you know, there's... And she's not been in battle. She may well not have ever killed a living thing before. Um, I don't, obviously, he's not going to stick with this, right? Um, but what do we see? Again, what, what, is the, what is the essence of this prophecy? The essence is, it's going to... On the one hand, he's going to be taken down at his highest point... But two, he's not going to be overcome by somebody else at an even higher point, right? Um, and three, he's going to be taken out by somebody who is very counterintuitive, right? Here we seem to have this kind of, this sort of the beginning of the deliberately misleading wording of the prophecy, right? Um, where the prophecy, the, the, the wording of the prophecy makes it sound almost impossible, for anybody to be able to fulfill it, right? But notice, Evan, we're still not Macbething, right? Um, he's still not appealing to that the general shape of a Macbeth-like prophecy um, uh, to uh, uh, to get there, right? To get to this, um, um, yeah. Well, Arthur, I don't think it means that she doesn't have to be wise at all, right? I don't think it means she has to be, uh, to have you know, to know nothing about weapons and to be an idiot. Um, it just, she has to be not a man of war or she's, she's not a man of wisdom. She can be as wise as she wants. She's not a man of wisdom, right? Uh, because she's not a man. So no problem. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, yes. Well, so Carrie, this is tricky. Carrie's pointing out that Eowyn's joining the army is out of depression uh, from rejection by Aragorn, not out of free-thinking feminism. That is true. But it's not true yet, remember, right? So, remember the chapter that isn't yet. Uh, so far, you know, we're up to the Siege of Gondor and the writing of the Rohirrim. Um, we're still missing a chapter, from the book. 
And that is the passing of the Grey Company. The passing of the Grey Company has been rolled together in with... Uh, um, so, like, the Aragorn goes to the Paths of the Dead and uh, Theoden returns and then we get the mustering. It's all in the mustering of Rohan chapter, right? Um, and one of the primary elements that we're now missing, apart from the actual description of the uh, the passing of the Paths of the Dead and the um, the tryst at the Stone of Erech... Um, we we don't get we don't have we that concept is there and the oathbreakers finally made it into the latest version of the poem uh you know the 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 words of Malbeth the seer but um we don't yet have any description of that right it doesn't take place in it and we also therefore we also don't have the um we also don't have the unrequited love of Eowyn for Aragorn. It's interesting. So far, they're kind of mutual, right? At the very beginning, she was totally his love interest and future wife, right? And the two of them, Aragorn and Eowyn, were destined for each other, and they were totally into it, right? Um, Then Tolkien decides, nah, I'm not going there, and neither one of them is into it, right? So, uh, Eowyn's, uh, which is... So, actually, Carrie, you know, you could say, right now, well... Okay, not quite anymore. When Eowyn asks Theoden to come along with him, and he says yes, that is like the high water mark of Eowyn's feminism, right? Um, when he's like, "Oh, like, where should we go for help? Like, we don't have enough men," and she's like, "No problem. Like, summon the shield maidens. I shall lead them into battle with you." Right? And he's like, "Okay, let's do that." Right? There you go. Like that is the high water. Eowyn's feminism in the whole history of the text, right? Um, she is not ever like briefly. She was supposed to be Aragorn's love interest. She was supposed to be his future wife. Though even there, she was future wife in the sense not of like I'm just kind of mooning around for Aragorn and I have no other job, but in the sense of this is a really important political alliance, and so she is the one who is his like lo- the logical one for him to go on and marry because she is important. Uh, you know, in herself and with for her position with her people. Um, so she wasn't just like an accessory of Aragorn's even then. And of course, as we've known from this, the uh, ever since uh, you know we've gotten the these uh, you know this final set of uh, outlines for the battles. As we've said, we know Aragorn and Eowyn's job is to kill the Witch King and die. So she is not just a love interest, right? She is not. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Jennifer. I don't think that ever overlapped. That I don't think we ever got her being his intended to be his future wife and also dying in the battle, because she was his future wife very briefly. Like when the very first time, like his very first go through, um, the King of the Golden Hall, she was going to be his future wife, but they got over it really quickly, right? I mean, uh, Aragorn and Eowyn's relationship was super brief um, before they decided to go their separate ways. Um, And so by the first time we ever got uh, towards the Battle of Pelennor Field, she was, she was, she was dying, right? You know, she was going to kill the Witch King and die. Um, So, um, so yeah, no, Ariel, I'm joking. She's never meant to be a feminist. And of course it's, it's inappropriate to talk in that way, you know, to, uh, to think about, uh, um, 
C.S. Lewis said that one of the most pointless things to this is a, a, a one of the wise things that C.S. Lewis said. One of the most pointless things that a modern historian or critic can do is to ask on what side of a modern question an old writer falls when he that question is never put before them. Like a question that really matters to us. Um and just was not anywhere on the radar screen of that. I mean, it's like vocabulary that is not even relevant and wouldn't even have made, would have had to be explained uh, to the person and to ask them, you know, so, so yeah, so this whole question of like, is Eowyn a feminist? Like that wasn't a thing, like not, not in the modern sense in the way that we talk about it. So um, no, no, I'm not, I'm not actually suggesting that I, I'm, I was, uh, um, I, I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, Boofle says, so was Tolkien for or against having pineapple on pizza? Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's, it's, it's kind of like that, right? To, to, if you really pour yourself into, like, getting data to try to answer that question, you're utterly wasting your time, right? That's a, a, a good, silly illustration of the kind of thing that C.S. Lewis was talking about. Um, you know, I mean, it's like saying, like, Boethius, was he for or against Marxism, right? I mean, it's like, okay, I mean, you can ask yourself that, but it doesn't make it a, uh, doesn't make it a sensible question. <laughs> Is Aragorn a Republican or a Democrat, <laughs> says Stephen. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Um so yeah, to to some extent, honestly, I think you know, is Eowyn a feminist? Is is exactly that kind of question, really? Um, uh, because it's just it's not it's not really a fair question to ask. What we can do, though, but what what we can see, she does not exist to be a romantic accessory to men. She doesn't exist to be any kind of accessory to men. Again, that the, the, there was a, that brief flash in the pan in which that was going to be her primary job, um, but she is quickly promoted to having a real job, right? Fulfilling the and then notice how this whole prophecy is building around her. Right. She's there. And the prophecy, it's all about her from the beginning. Right. Um, So this whole prophecy growing up, making as the black captain himself grows her, the significance of her accomplishment in killing him, uh, especially sacrificially, as as far as we know, she's still going to die. Makes it makes it even 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 greater. Right. Something even um, uh, even more. Uh, significant. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, what more, uh, what more we would, uh, we would want, uh, from her there. But anyway, okay. Um, let's keep going. Oh, Angmar. So we get Angmar now. Actually, I, I totally skipped over the first half of this slide, focusing on the, on the prophecy now. Um, uh, notice that the, Gan- the the idea of the witch king being Gandalf's opposite number, uh, and possibly even overmastering him or overmatching him, um, Gandalf still leaves that up in the air, right? So that's still the kind of operative question: Gandalf, are you overmatched? Can you take him, Gandalf, or is he stronger than you? And Gandalf's like, you know, who knows? This, the trial of our our trial of strength has not come yet. Um, you know, so they're still scheduled to have. Their arm wrestling competition, but it hasn't happened yet. So that that concept of the black captainist as being the anti Gandalf still very central. Um, but now we get Angmar. So what's the significance of that? Well, on the one hand, this shows that we're you know we're no longer vindicating Peter Jackson, right? We're not. Um, 
Uh, we don't have any tombs of the Nazgul uh, under the mountains anymore. But uh, more importantly, I think, we show him... This is another move. At the end of the day, this elevates him more, right? Um, this gives him his own gig. It's still, even though he's serving Sauron and has always been serving Sauron, um, King of Angmar long ago, we now have an identity for him, right? Um, does this mean that he was King of Angmar, like that was his original, like, during his normal mortal life, he was King of Angmar? Is this the, was Angmar maybe a good kingdom, which is perverted and twisted into evil when its king receives the ring, right? We don't know. I, I, you know, I, I, so what King of Angmar long ago means at this point, you know, it's hard to be sure of, uh, but it's, it's something, right? We get more of an identity to him. The fact that he was King of Angmar long ago does suggest that he's no longer... He's obviously not one of Gandalf's order anymore. So that concept seems to have already passed. Um, uh, but but notice, Gandalf's off opposite number, he still is, right? So that concept is staying even though he's now refining how he's getting there. Okay, um... Mithrandir's help fails now, said some, for Gandalf had ridden down to Osgiliath at Faramir's side, but others said, Nay, he has never given any, not of such a kind. He is not a captain of war. That's a news flash, right? Gandalf not being a captain of war. This is not Gandalf's army anymore. This is not Gandalf goes up to the Black Gate, and, you know, like, his army with him. Um, This is a a very firm statement. We can see uh, this seems to be an articulation of that reorientation that Tolkien has been doing in his uh, refining of Gandalf's role. Right. Uh, And again, it's not uncommon for us to see this, right? For Tolkien to articulate the changing of his ideas through the dialogue of a character, right? Uh, And then eventually he's going to take that out. He rarely leaves those things in. Um, But uh, very standard uh, for us to see him articulating a new concept or changing an old concept through dialogue like this. Um, anyway, okay, but we'll keep going. But late that night he returned, riding with the last wains filled with wounded men. They have paid dearly for the causeway. Presumably the enemies have paid dearly for the causeway, he said. Although they had prepared all things well, presumably they, the enemy, has prepared all things well. They have been building barges and boats secretly in East Ostgiliath to the ruin of Athelian's trees. I love that, right? I kind of wish Gandalf still said that in the published text. Um, uh, he's the only wizard who really cares about trees, says Treebeard, right? Uh, and for Gandalf to look at all of the rafts and boats that they have put together in East Osgiliath, and for him to immediately say, oh, the trees, oh man, the trees of Athelion have really suffered for this. It seems like a totally Gandalf thing, right? I love that. But the river is now half choked with them, that is, the barges and boats. But he has come, but he has come, whom I feared. Not the Dark Lord, cried Pippin. No, he will not come except in triumph, said Gandalf. He wields others as his weapons. I speak of one whom you have met, the Wizard King, captain of those you called the Black Riders, most fell of all the servants of the Dark Tower. But he has not struck out yet, taken to winged steeds. In him I am not overmatched, and yet still I am matched. For he was a member of our order before evil took him. Oh, it comes back! Now his fury and malice are grown to the full, and men fly before him. 
All right, hang on a second. Let me check. Okay, no, this is before. All right. Okay, good. So I'm 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 shifting things about here. Uh, so this is this is not. He's not reverting to it. Uh, he's still holding on to that idea. So this idea is not brief, right? It sticks through two versions. The member of his order thing. When he becomes the king of Angmar, that seems to have dropped down. Um. Okay, and men fly before him again. Now, so notice how his his fury and malice are sort of radiating out from him like the shadow, which is causing men to run away, just as the Nazgul run from the light that's radiating out from uh, 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 from Gandalf. Okay. Okay, let's keep let's keep moving. There, Gandalf stood. And then over the hill in the flare of the fire a great black horseman came. For a moment he something halted menacing and lifted up a great something sword red to the hilt. Fear fell on all something or other, some more stuff. Then great rams went on before, but the steel only shook and boomed. The black captain something or other, lifted again his hand, crying in a dreadful voice. In some forgotten tongue he spoke, crying aloud words of power and terror. Thrice the rams boomed, thrice he cried, and then suddenly the gate, as if stricken by some blast, burst probably asunder, and a great flash as of lightning burst and fell, and in rode the lord of the Nazgul. But there, waiting still before the gate, sat Gandalf, and Shadowfax alone among the free horses of the earth did not probably quail, but stood rooted as an image of grey marble. This is the Lord of the Nazgul's high water mark, right? This is uh, the most fell the fell captain is gonna get, right? Um, anything jump out at you here? What do you really? Uh, what do you really notice? Um, I couldn't. I couldn't help but make the crack at Gandalf's expense about knowing the words that will open a door. Um, I was already thinking about Moria before Gandalf opens his mouth, which we're going to get to in the next slide here. But, um, but yeah, how uh, he's facing a locked gate, and what does he do? Cries out words of power, and they just blast down. Right. Um, it almost makes me wonder why he even bothered with the battering ram. Right. I mean, I don't know if this is like a necessary material component for his words of power and terror, but it's fairly clear that it's uh, it's his words. It's his spell which shatters the gates of Minas Tirith here, because um, notice the ram, um, the rams went on before, but the steel only shook and boomed. Right. So when the ram is just beating on the gates, it's just it's shaking the gates a little bit and it's making a booming noise. Um but it's not doing it. It's obviously not on pace to to uh, uh, shatter the gates in three shots, right? Whereas, once the black captain lifts up his hand and cries in a dreadful voice, the gates uh, uh, the gates are blasted, right? In a great great flash, as of lightning, recalling Gandalf's. Uh, the blue light that comes from Gandalf's wand or staff, right? Remember Bilbo, struck by lightning, struck by lightning, right? Um, which is why he says that, because that's what the blue light from Gandalf's staff looks like. Um, so again, we see the gate blasted by what looks like a great flash of lightning. Um, okay, so... Uh, Yes, Terra, I also like that he gives Shadowfax agency, um, as though he chooses to stand firm alone among all the horses. Yes, it's not just that Gandalf's will holds Shadowfax in place, right? This is not uh, 
Shadowfax as accessory to Gandalf's awesomeness, right? This is Shadowfax's independent awesomeness, um, that he passes the test which no other uh, free horse of the earth would pass. Um, even Tara, the fact that he's emphasized as being one of the free horses. He's not a slave, not even a Gandalf, right? Um, he's not being constrained against his will. He is... Well, I was going to say he's got Gandalf's back, which is kind of an ironic thing to say about a horse that you're riding, right? He's got Gandalf on his back, really. But uh, uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Let's keep going. Finish the scene. You cannot pass, said Gandalf, which, as I said, I was already thinking about Moria before Gandalf said that. Go back to the black abyss prepared for you and fall into nothingness that shall come upon your master. The black rider lay, laid back his hood and something or other crown sat upon no visible head save only for the light of his pale eyes. A deadly laughter probably rang out. Old fool, he said, old fool, do you not know death when you see it? Die now and curse in vain. This is my hour of victory. And with that he lifted his great sword. Added, and then suddenly his hand wavered and fell, and it seemed that he shrank. And, changed to four, in that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that far above the shadows of death was now coming once again. And as if in answer there came from far away another note. Horns, 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 great horns of the north wildly blowing. The riders of Rohan had come at last. Okay. Um, uh, uh, this is just an awesome scene, even in draft form. Um, bunch of awesome things here. One thing that really is very striking is the cock crow. Um, notice how much more force the cock crow has. When the rooster crows, he shrinks. The witch king shrinks, right? He he lifts his great sword, and then it, his hand falls when he hears the rooster. He doesn't just pause, right? Uh, he is... Uh, he is changed. He's affected by it. Um, this, of course, is traditional. Uh, this is a traditional fairy tale, which is an old uh, piece of fairy lore. Um, when uh, J.K. Rowling included uh, that the crowing of a rooster would kill a basilisk. She wasn't making that up out of nowhere. Um, the inimical effect that the crowing of roosters have upon uh, magical creatures, specifically upon fairies, upon creatures of fairy, um, is an old fairy tale trope. And uh, um, it's interesting that he appeals to this very strongly here. Um, that... Um, When he hears the that it's not just when he hears the cro- the cock crow, the cock crow changes him. Um, he shrinks already just when that happens. And uh, Yana, it's it does also it has a couple different functions, right? One is that this sort of fairy tale thing. It's like a counterspell, 
I mean, it's what you do. I mean, it's one of the ways that you can kind of protect yourself from fairies. And uh, remember, fairies are not friendly all the time. Uh, and you might want to, you know, it's useful to have roosters around because they, uh, you're less likely to get bothered by fairies if you've got roosters because they're, they're not going to want to come to your farm because they might accidentally hear a rooster, right? Um, you know, this is why, again, this is why, this is why, uh, 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 Tom Riddle has Ginny Weasley kill all the roosters, right? Because you want to, you want to, you, you don't want to take any chances with that. Um, so on the one hand, we get that element, right? This is, it's like a counterstroke. Um, Gandalf doesn't even have to do anything before Gandalf can do anything other than curse him, right? Other than say you cannot do do another you cannot pass speech, uh, but Gandalf has no chance to act, and it just happens, right? Um, the counter spell against the Witch King uh, happens outside of Gandalf's control when suddenly a random rooster crows in the city. Um, but the second thing, Yana, there's a second level of irony there, right? Um, that. Um, he says, this is my hour, and then the rooster crows, and it's like, oh, guess your hour of victory is up, right? It, it was your hour of victory, but now, uh, you know, the way in which roosters are also, like, you know, for telling time, right? And, of course, specifically, what the, as the narrator reminds us, the point that the, is the beginning of the day, right? It's dawn. Um, uh, what is the rooster saying, right? Uh, if you could translate, if you could translate the rooster cry into Quenya, what would the rooster be saying? <laughs> Do you think? Um, uh, yeah, Auta Ilome, right? Aure <laughs> and Tuliva. Um, the day has come, right? Um, uh, the day has come, the night is passing. Uh, that's what the roost, that's, that's, that's like the rough translation of a rooster's cry, right? As the narrator prompts us there. Um, and that's the message to the witch king, right? Who's all like, this is my hour of victory. Oops, night's over. Day has come again. Sorry. Uh, your hour is over. So Yana, I do think that there's a deliberate, um, uh, there's a deliberate, uh, irony there. I, I mean, it's like a harsh irony uh, for, from the Witch King's perspective, right? Um, he's really taken down a peg and not by Gandalf. Um, and again, we see him being physically taken down a peg as he shrinks and drops his hand. Um, uh, good. Uh, what else did I want? Oh, notice the... Um, the difference in his speech, which is almost this, you know, old fool, do you not know death when you see it, die now and curse in vain, uh, this is my hour of victory. How does that differ from his Return of the King speech? What's the, um, uh, what's the, what's the chief difference? He doesn't say, this is my hour of victory. In The Return of the King, he just says, this is my hour. Yes, Arthur, and you're right, the sequence is different. Old fool, this is my hour, die now and curse in vain. Um, he doesn't say, this is my hour of victory. Why does he say, this is my hour of victory? Because it's the prophecy, right? He doesn't know the prophecy, uh, but he's quoting the prophecy, right? Uh, and again, 
it's like the joke is so on him, right? Uh, and it's really amazing how we have the Witch King, which you'll notice I'm still calling him the Witch King because I'm, I can't call him the Wizard King because that's I can't do that. But anyway, um, uh, the Witch King, right, is um, on the one hand set up in deliberate parallel with the Balrog, right? So just as we had the Balrog and Gandalf confronting the Balrog, so we have the the Witch King and Gandalf confronting the Witch King. Um, And like as before, Gandalf putting himself in the narrow way, right, to uh, uh, put himself between the, uh, you know, horrible enemy uh, and uh, those whom he's um, whom he's protecting. Uh, But um, so, yeah, lots of parallels there with the, but unlike with the Balrog, right? The Balrog, first the Witch King gets paralleled with the Balrog like he's, you know, a, 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 an ancient evil of the old world, and then he's, like, made fun of, right? Um, it isn't exactly like we hear his speech and laugh at him, but almost, right? Um, die now in curse in vain, he says, right? Which is a curse. Like, so he's like delivering a counter curse, except his curse is obviously in vain. Um, as we see immediately, you know, and the whole, like the, the, the way he gets completely undercut. I was about to say he gets, uh, he gets, uh, uh, he gets undercut at the knees, but of course that's probably, uh, a little too on the nose when it comes to the Witch King there, but, um, uh, you know, he's, I mean, this is my hour of, (laughs) right. I mean, it's, he barely gets the word victory out before he's shrinking and his, 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 he's wavering and his hand falls and he's, I mean, like, come on, this is, uh, it's kind of funny, right. The way in which he is undermined here. Um, and, and the and you know the cock crows and the horns come and he's just said again it's it's the final irony right he's just said this is my hour of victory which sounds like a fairly self confident thing to say unless you know the fact that that's exactly what the prophecy says is going to be the day he's going to die so um, you know he in fact uh, and notice how it changes. Think about how that redefine his uttering the, the the sentence. This is my hour of victory. How that retroactively changes the significance of what he just said. Do you not know death when you see it? Right? Yeah, yeah, but not Gandalf's death. Your death, right? I do know death when I see it, and I'm looking at it right now, right? Because this is your hour of victory, uh, and that's when you're gonna die. So. That's funny, but you don't know how funny it is. It's just really interesting to me um, that uh, uh, that we see this is the move that to, this kind of undermining. Now, the undermining of the Witch King is going to get much less dramatic, right? He's not going to shrink. Uh, you know, he's not going to drop his hand. He's not going to. Um, we're not. He's not going to directly quote the prophecy yet, right? He's going to do it later on, uh, but knowingly, right? Even then. Uh, when he uh, when he quotes the prophecy in the published text, he quotes the prophecy knowing that he's quoting the prophecy. He doesn't quote it by accident, right? Uh, so that the joke's on him. Do you not know death when you see it is not going to be made. There's not going to be dramatic irony heaped upon that sentence in the final text, right? So we're not going to be 
the the Witch King is not going to be the butt of the joke anymore. But it's it's uh, it's it's kind of amazing to me um, that uh, that's that's the move, right? And it doesn't make this scene less awesome because uh, you have to kind of think it through. Like the first response to this scene, as it's described, is still like you know, he's terrifying and it's really, uh, you know, it, it, it gives you chills and it's awesome. Uh, but then the more you think about it, the more, uh, the more ironic, uh, it becomes. Um, anyway. All right. So there's the witch King, but we'll get back to, we don't get the death of the witch King yet. We'll get there soon next week, I think. Okay. One quick note, uh, following up the uh, thing we talked about a little bit before about the military position of Minas Tirith, by which I mean uh, this sort of shift that we've been watching of how the war of Gondor has shifted from an offensive war to a defensive war. Um, I, I really like how that gets um, um, how that gets uh, um, focused here in this passage. The Lord drives his son too hard, and now he must do duty for the one that is dead as well, added in ink. But in truth, Faramir went at his own will, and he it was that most swayed the council of the captains. The council of the Lord had decided that with the threat from the south, their force was too weak to make any stroke of war on their own part. They must man the defenses and wait. Yet ever Faramir had urged that their outer defenses must not be abandoned, and the river was was the one that the enemy should buy most dearly. It could not be crossed by a great host north of Menfalros because of the marshes, and away south in Lebenin it became too broad without many boats. So now he was gone again, taking such few men as Denethor would spare to strengthen the force that held the western ruins of Osgiliath. Added in ink, but hold not too long so far afield, said Denethor as he went out. Though you slay ten times your number at the crossing, the enemy has more to spare, and your retreat will be hazardous. And do not forget that something danger in the north. Not one army only will be sent at this time from the Black Gate. And here's the Denethor that we know and love, right? Uh, the Denethor who tells his son Faramir not to risk himself needlessly, uh, not to endanger needlessly the lives of uh, the men of, you know, the defenders of Minas Tirith, um, you know, not to throw any lives away, um, uh, you know, and to uh, to be careful and everything. Um, and yeah, Evan, it's kind of amazing Right, that it's Faramir, not Denethor, who wants to hold the outer defenses. Um, this is just an act of... So notice the, the sort of... Both Faramir and Denethor are excellent military captains, right? Faramir, on the one hand, is right. You know, he's like, we, we have these defenses. We can't just give them up, right? We have to make them pay. We have to defend the crossing of the river, at least, right? This is our best defense. Um, we can't just abandon it and let them cross without without it costing them anything, right? At the very least, we need to weaken their army at the crossing of the river is our best chance to do it. It's very sound strategy, right? But also, Denethor's caution, though you slay ten times your number at the crossing, the enemy has more to spare. Yeah, you can make him pay very dearly indeed to cross the Anduin, Um but at the end of the day, it's not really going to... If they outnumber us by so much that it's probably not going to make a big difference, so don't overextend yourself, right? It would be foolish to throw away any significant portion of our strength, even for, you know, uh, what would seem to be a very high cost to them. Uh, so both of them, 
making very sound arguments. Uh, Faramir being forward into battle uh, and wanting to do the valiant thing, uh, the valiant and self-sacrificing thing. And Denethor being cautious, more conservative. That we've seen all the way through. Denethor has always been more cautious and conservative than Faramir, um, the, or than Gandalf as well. Um, when we have had difference, differences in battle strategy, Denethor has always so far been on the side of caution, right, and not moving forward. But another really important thing here, and obviously we're going to get to talking about uh, Denethor very soon now, um, but the, the, the other thing to really be noticed here is that business about, uh, with the threat in the south, their force was too weak to make any stroke of war on their own part. Notice how Tolkien's kind of having it both ways here, right? Um, they still want to wage an offensive war, right? They still want to attack, but they can't attack because of the threat in the south. Because the army of Southrons coming up um, the river has prevented the strength of Gondor from the south. You know, the armies of the, uh, of the, 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 the southern lands of Gondor have not been able to come in to reinforce the capital, uh, so they don't have enough of an army to be able to, uh, to, attack them, uh, to attack on their own part, like they did in the earlier drafts, right? So notice another thing. The army coming up from the south has become much more significant, right? This is not just... It almost sounded, remember back in the days when they were crossing a pass to come down, right, and doing the Hannibal thing? Um, it almost sounded as if the whole point was just like, let's take the army while it's divided, right? Then we can we can come in and we can attack them unexpectedly uh, before they can come and consolidate their forces in front of Minas Tirith. Um, and then that way we can, you know by stealing a march on them in this way, uh, we can take them while they're divided and overwhelm them. So it's a brilliant and aggressive offensive maneuver uh, which takes the army at their weakest, the enemy armies at their weakest. Now, both armies, enemy armies, have grown huge. It's not just the massive army that's coming across from Minas Morgul, uh, which is so large that they can make them pay ten times their number and the enemy wouldn't even notice. Now, that army from the south is also huge. Right, so big that it's it's keeping the entire force of the southern fiefs in place, so that they can't uh, they can't come. To, and this is why. So again, Tolkien's kind of having his cake and eating it too. Right, they would be offensive. They would go out there and make a stroke of war on their own, but, uh, um, but um, they can't. Right, they're prevented from doing this. So, um. Yeah. <laughs> Tara says that the rumble chat has devolved into a debate on the circadian rhythm of chickens. <laughs> yeah, okay. See, there you go. There you go. Uh, somebody has to sort out those kinds of things, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, Stephen, yes, we, they're, they're getting direct information on the South Runs. We still have no evidence that Denethor has any... Uh, information that anybody else doesn't have, right? I mean, apart from the fact that people are reporting to him. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. But let's look at Denethor. Parenting tips from Denethor. Do you wish then, said Faramir, that our places had been exchanged? Him and Boromir, of course. Yes, I wish that indeed, said Denethor. Or no, 
And then he shook his head, and rising suddenly laid his hand on his son's shoulder. Do not judge me harshly, my son, he said, or think that I am harsh. Love is not blind. I knew your brother also. I would wish only that he had been in your place if I were sure of one thing. And what is that, my father? That he was as strong in heart as you, and as trustworthy. That taking this thing he had brought it to me, and not fallen under thraldom. For Faramir, and you, Mithrandir, amid all your far-flung policies, there is another way that is not yours nor Boromir's. It is one thing to take and wield this power for one's own victory. You, Mithrandir, may think what you will of me. What I think of you is at least one part of my mind that you do not seem to have read, said Gandalf. <laughs> oh, snap! That's one of my favorite Gandalf burns yet, right? Gandalf is full of these, uh, especially in the early drafts. Um, it's almost like, you know, Gandalf is like one of those people with no filter, right? So, like, the very first thing he says is, like, uh, completely snarky and unfiltered. But then as Tolkien goes back and revise, revises, those things get taken out. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, that's a really good one. Anyhow, okay. Um Denethor, right? Now, on the one hand, this is still a kind of... Well, it's no... I, I won't call it a backhanded compliment. Um, he doesn't unsay exactly what he says, right? He's not saying... Faramir says, do you wish that our places had been exchanged? Like, do you wish that it was me who died and Boromir who lived, right? Uh, and he's like, yes, I wish that indeed. Well, I, I, you know, don't misunderstand, right? It's not that I totally wish that you were dead. Um, I wish that Boromir had been in your place, if only... And then he turns it into a compliment, right? I would wish oh, uh, uh, only that he had been in your place uh, if I were sure that he was as strong in heart as you and as trustworthy, right? So I, I could wish that Boromir... Um, had been in your place, if he had been as awesome as you, but had not done that stupid thing about letting the ring go into Mordor, right? That's really kind of the... He's still criticizing him, right? He's still saying, I think what you did was stupid, right? That was incredibly foolish uh, for you, like Mithrandir, to send the ring off into Mordor, like, that was dumb, and I I totally disapprove of that move. Um, But at the same time... You know, I admit, like, yeah, Boromir kind of screwed the pooch too, right? So, so like, there, there there's a poss- there's a third way that's neither uh, Faramir's way nor Boromir's way. Boromir's way was to keep the ring for himself, like that was that was a bad call. Faramir's was to go along with Mithrandir and send it off to Mordor. Um, there's a middle ground, right? Which would have been. Uh, so he's not actually saying, I wish your places were exchanged. What he ends up kind of coming around to saying is, I kind of wish I had the hybrid son. Like, if I could take my two sons and roll them up into one perfect hybrid package so that we have somebody who has the the strength of heart and trustworthiness of Faramir um, with the, like, total devotion to Minas Tirith and the, you know, not being swayed by wizard's councils that Boromir had, um, you know, then it, then it would have, um, uh, it would have come in. So, yeah, Jennifer, he does kind of come around to saying you both failed me, though he also kind of comes around to saying Boromir failed him even worse than Faramir did, right? So it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess if I'm Faramir, I'm coming to the end of this speech and 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 trying to work it out and see if it comes to a compliment, right? Uh, but there's no question um, 
about the fact that he this is much closer to a compliment than what than what Denethor says uh, in the published text, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Denethor says, or Nancy says, Denethor doesn't want to be thought harsh, uh, so he so he 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 uh, he rags on both his sons. Yeah, exactly. That's how you not be harsh. See, parenting tips from Denethor. It's really, this is very handy. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said, it's kind of complicated, but obviously this is eye-opening, right? I mean, you can't not, I mean, how many of you did not have your eyebrows lift when he says, or no, and rise up and put his hand on Faramir's shoulder, right? It's like, whoa, what have you, you know, who are you and what have you done with Denethor? I mean, this is, this is amazing. Uh, to see Denethor doing... He's still not changed his mind, right? It was a bad call. I still want the ring here. I'd keep it safe and everything. But notice, first, he's not harsh to Faramir. And, well, I mean, again, still much, much less harsh. Um, but secondly, he's also less arrogant and sort of maniacal, right? Um, he doesn't just think of Gondor itself. He doesn't just think of... Uh, you know, himself as the perfect uh, caretaker of the ring. Um, uh, He's not, we don't see the megalomaniacal Denethor yet at all, right? Um, Here's the thing I want to remind us of. What's Denethor's role been? What's Denethor's job in this story? Remember Denethor's first job in this story? The very first role that Denethor was designed to play uh, back in the very, very first outline projection for the battle at Minas Tirith. Remember what Denethor's job was? Exactly, James Stevens. To kick the bucket early so that we can get on to the, to the inheritance already, right? He was going to die super early on in the battling so that we could then have, like, do we... Do we take Boromir, his heir, who is still alive, um, or do we um, elect this, like, the new kid, Aragorn, and they decide to do Aragorn, right? So, um, so yeah, so he's he was he was just, he was, wow, Deadwood, I was about to say. It's a little harsh. Um, but he was in the way, right? His job was to die and get succeeded. Uh, so, there you go. Um... Ever since Boromir died and now he's been surviving, he still has kind of vanished. I mean, you remember his role when Gandalf was leading the army? He was just going to hang out back in... They were going to leave him back in Minas Tirith. Like, you know, you uh, mind the fort here, right? Just you look after things at home and we'll go take care of business at the Black Gate, right? That's... I mean, they kind of left him behind to babysit, right? Um, in other words... Denethor has not really had a role. It's been a very unclear role. The only time he's spoken up has been to be conservative, as I said, conservative and defensive, though conservative still in generally kind of a wise fashion. He's not been foolish. He's not been timid. He's not been a coward, uh, but he's not been as bold as some others. Um, But he doesn't have a job. Especially once, you know, he didn't have a job when Gandalf was there. And then Aragorn shows up and he's totally out of a job, right? Um, So, what's Denethor's role? So, there's been a large sense in which 
even if we don't look at it from the, you know, even if we try to forget everything we know about the published text, right? We just look at the text, the story as it's been unfolding so far. Denethor has still been a problem or well, I won't say a problem. I'll say a question mark, right? What, what, what do we do with him? Do we need him? Right. Um, what's he going to do? So I think that I, I have been feeling that the Denethor question has been something that's been getting kind of more and more acute. Uh, and as we get closer to the actual battle, the need to do something with Denethor, um, he has to be, he can't just be a cipher. He can't just be a figurehead ruler who doesn't actually do anything because Gandalf's the one who's actually in charge until Aragorn shows up and then he's the one really in charge, right? So having him just be passively bossed around by everybody else uh, doesn't seem like the move, right? So uh, what are we going to... Where is he going to go? What's he going to do? Again, in the debate on the following day, it is still Faramir who argues that... This is Christopher explaining it, of course. It is still Faramir who argues that an attempt must be made to hold the outer defenses at the line of the Anduin. But so far does the new writing go towards the actual words of the return of the king that when my father came to revise the passage, he had little more to do than to give the speeches to different characters. In this version, the speech made by Prince Imrahil, warning of an, another host that may come from Mordor, is given to Gandalf, and it is Faramir who is adamant and concludes the debate with words that afterwards became his father's. Much must be risked in war, said Faramir, but I will not yield the river and the fields of Pelennor unfought unless my father commands me beyond denial. I do not, said Denethor. Farewell, and may your judgment prove just, at least so much that I may see you again. Farewell. Here's still plain vanilla Denethor, right? Uh, this is like milk toast. I've got no roll and no spine Denethor still, right? But yeah, Jennifer, this kind of breaks my brain too, right? Seeing these speeches that we're so familiar with in the mouths of different people, right? And in their mouths, meaning something completely different. Much must be risked in war. Um, I will not yield the river and the fields of Pelennor unfought. When Faramir says that, I mean, wow, right? Complete transformation uh, of that speech. Um, this is now like the, the resolute words of a bold captain, right? Um, and here's Denethor saying, okay, son, you know, win one for the gipper. Uh, so what's Tolkien going to do? Eventually, down the road, he's just going to reallocate the speeches, pretty much, right? Change a couple things, but doesn't need to change too much. Now, just as a total side note, um, I feel like this should have like a do not attempt thing, uh, you know, sort of uh, under like if you're revising, if you're writing a book and you're revising it and you decide that you want to completely change the like trajectory of an entire conversation keeping almost all the speeches word for word and just putting them in the mouths of different characters, unlikely to affect the change really well, right? I, I, I cannot say how much I don't recommend <laughs> that you take this approach to revising your own stories. Um, in fact, really, it's one, of, it's one of the things I just, that kind of blows my mind. Um, I, uh, I don't know. Maybe someday I'll, I'll I'll put this all this stuff all together in a in a in a talk. But um, 
I, uh, it's something I've been kind of thinking about a lot as we've been going through the history of the Lord of the Rings in particular. People often talk about how the Lord of the Rings, if the Lord of the Rings manuscript was sent to a modern publisher, no one would ever publish it. Like they, uh, no modern publisher would accept all the stuff that you get in the Lord of the Rings. Um, they would want so much revision and, uh, it's a, it's an interesting exercise to imagine what a modern editor would do to the Lord of the Rings if it were handed to them. Um, but, um, uh, but apart from the, you know, the, the unorthodox final product, <laughs> Tolkien's process, like I just, uh, it's just really funny. Uh, I, I, um, he doesn't do this the right way. <laughs> this is not how you're supposed to do it. I don't think anybody would say would would recommend uh, Tolkien's. Uh, like, you know, like, uh, have you ever heard any creative, you know, in like like a creative writing class context? You imagine a creative writing instructor being like, okay, whatever you do, never change anything. Like, if you have to cut something out, keep it so that you can use that line word for word somewhere else, right? Just whatever you do, change as little as possible in order to affect the change that you're trying to go for. I. Mean, like it's a a, a uh, an approach that seems more certain to end in like disastrous confusion and uh, unreadable prose. It's hard to imagine advocating, and yet, of course, it's exactly what Tolkien does, and it's completely brilliant how, how he does it. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nancy says, despite changing it as little as possible, make sure to do so in as many drafts as you can. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's kind of amazing. Um, but anyway, sorry, that's kind of a that's kind of an aside, but I couldn't help but uh, but think about that here. But of course, it does work and it works phenomenally. Right. Um, when he does come back to this. When it's Denethor saying those things, much must be risked in war, but I will not yield the river and the fields of the Pelennor unfought. 100% different, right? Completely in the opposite direction. Um, it is chilling. Um, uh, uh, it is absolutely chilling to hear Denethor say those words to Faramir, right? Um, anyway, let's keep going. But he's not saying it yet, right? So how does this, how does this happen? The early conversation of Faramir and his father and motives must be altered. Tolkien finally discovers the answer, right? As we've seen happen so many times, sometimes we see these things get discovered right away. Sometimes he will, you know, like the, 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 the penny will finally drop, right? He finally sees the picture. Denethor has been this shadowy figure in the background, constantly pushed to the side, right? You know, he's like the dude standing, you know, the guy without a, you know, without a partner at the middle school dance for the whole discussion of the battle of uh, Pelennor Field. But now Tolkien finally, it all comes together, right? The early conversation of Faramir and his father and motives must be altered. Denethor must be harsh, he must say he did wish Boromir had been at Henneth Anun, for he would have been loyal to his father and brought him the ring. Gandalf may correct this. That's non-zero chance that Gandalf will correct this uh, misapprehension. Faramir grieved, but patient. Then Denethor must be all for holding us Gilead like Boromir did, while Faramir and Gandalf are against it, using the arguments previously given to Denethor. 
at length in submission but proudly to please his father and show him that not only Boromir was brave, that not only Boromir was brave, he accepts the command at Osgiliath. Men in the city do not like it. This will not only be truer to the previous situation, but will explain Denethor's breaking up when Faramir is brought back, dying, as it seems. Right? Denethor has to crumble. Right? Uh, that He realizes Denethor's role is to be lost. Right? Denethor is going to be the vanquished city of Minas Tirith. Right? Um, he's going to lose it. And he's going to, and this is why he's going to lose it. Right? Uh, he's going to lose it because he pushed, it's going to be the knowledge, the fact that he pushed Faramir to his own death, that he sent Faramir out, not only sent him out uh, deliberately uh, to try vainly, foolishly uh, to live up to his, you know, brother's reputation, um, but did so unthanked with, you know, the last words he ever said to him were really harsh. I mean, this is... uh, this is really keen psychological insight on Tolkien's part right here. I mean, I, I can't help but think this is a... Let's not forget, it's 1946, right? Uh, Tolkien has had the experience of sending his sons out to war, right? And he is still, in 1946, nursing one of his sons who has returned home uh, shell-shocked and uh, very um, unwell, Right? Uh, so, uh, he, uh, has had not, I mean, not exactly this experience. I mean, I he didn't send his, you know, sons out and wasn't harsh to them as far as we know. Um, but yeah, I, you can see Tolkien imagining this. I, I do think that, you know, this is notice what I'm doing. I'm appealing to Tolkien's biography, which I almost never do. But, uh, but, but this insight, this is, uh, uh, you know, the insight of a, this is a very parental insight here, right? Uh, not that we're giving how to parenting, uh, tips here yet. Uh, but, uh, but clearly he is, uh, seeing the psychological picture, uh, from the point of view of a parent, right? Um, Denethor is going to break up, right? That's what Denethor is going to do. Uh, he's going to, and he's going to die. The pyre of Denethor is already crackling off in the distance now, right? Um, he has discovered what Denethor's job is going to be. This is the natural fulfillment of Denethor's character. Um, and of course, it also makes... He hasn't said it yet, but we can see how like this, this conception of Denethor clicks into place, right? It fits like a puzzle piece when you finally find the right piece. Um, not only does it work psychologically, not only does it deepen, uh, uh, greatly deepen the story of Faramir, um, not only does it get Denethor out of the way when we need him out of the way, um, and also, by the way, spotlight Gandalf's role in a really productive way without Gandalf having to assert himself and take charge in a kind of dubious and uncomfortable way. Um, but it also... Um, enables him to have Denethor be like the symbol of the Gondor that you have known, right? And uh, the old days uh, are passing and, you know, the new age has come. 
Uh, so the whole, you know, and that, you know, using Denethor and Faramir kind of generation, generationally to sort of show that as well. Okay, just everything, like, boom, it completely fits. Well, I say everything, almost everything, because you'll notice what's still not there, right? And what's still not there is the Palantir. Um, it's just his daddy issues. Uh, okay. And Faramir lay in his chamber, wandering in fever, dying, as it was said, while his father sat beside him, and heeded little the ending of the defense. It seemed to Pippin, who often watched by his side or at the door, that at last something had snapped in the proud will of Denethor, whether grief at the harsh words he spoke before Faramir rode out, or the bitter thought that whatever now should happen in the war, his line too was ending, and even the house of the stewards would fail, and a lesser house rule the last remnant of the king of men. So it was that without word spoken or any commission from the Lord, Gandalf took command of the defense. Wherever he came, men's hearts were lifted, and the winged shadows passed from memory. Tirelessly he went from citadel to the gate, from north to south about the wall, and yet, when he had gone, the shadow seemed to close on men again, and vain it seemed to resist, to wait there for cold sword and cruel hunger. See how it all fits? See how it all comes together, right? This is it, right? This is the answer. This not just solves all the problems. This doesn't just solve the problems, right? It's not even just about that. This brings everything beautifully up. to See, all those things I was just talking about, see how they're all there, right? Even the, 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 the house of the stewards failing and a lesser house rule, the last remnant of the king, his line too is ending, right? Again, the Gondor that you've known is gone. But also, of course, notice submerged within that, we get the dramatic irony, right? The House of Stewards might be failing, but it's not a lesser house that's going to rule the last remnant of the kings of men, right? Uh, the king is returning. He is coming. Um, we're going to get, like, the, we can hear the, the distant footsteps of the eucatastrophe coming in that line, right? And it's really, it's really awesome. Um, and Yana, exactly, this is, as we've seen so many times, uh, and as he articulated it, it's like him discovering what really happened, right? Now he has seen the real story of Denethor, and it, everything works. So beautiful. Uh, short note uh, on Prince Imrahil, and I'll stop after this. We didn't quite get to the mustering of Rohan, uh, so we'll get to the wild men and uh, Treebeard next time, but... Um, uh, so we didn't do Woses after all, but let's do Prince Imrahil before we go. Lastly, it is worth remarking that the importance of the Prince of Dal Amroth was enlarged as the chapter evolved. In the draft sea, Pippin did not name him among the great persons present at the council held before Faramir's return from Henneth Anun. And this remains the case in the fair copy D. The prince's intervention in, in the deliberations before Faramir went to Osgiliath is absent in the first version of D. Uh, remember the words that he will get in the published text are given to Gandalf first. It enters with the revision where he is called Dal Emroth. His bringing of Faramir to the White Tower was never added to D. Um, that is, remember, when he's the one who's carrying the injured Faramir into the city, right? So he's, he's, he doesn't get that role right away. And in drafting for the latter part of D, he is not mentioned as accompanying Gandalf in his tireless perambulation of the city. The passage in which he is introduced here with the reference to there being elvish blood in the veins of that folk, for the people of Nimradel dwelt once in that land long ago, was in fact written into the D manuscript as an afterthought soon after my father had passed this point. 
At this stage, the name Imrahil had still not emerged. So this is just a little note to say Prince Imrahil still not really there. He's 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 growing, right? He's not named yet. The there seem to be two elements, right? One, there seems to be a desire to have some other captain of Gondor. You know, so we have so far we have a council of Denethor, Gandalf, Faramir, right? Um, so that Tolkien seems to want, or to come to want, as he's revising these scenes, somebody else, right? Some other Gondorian perspectives, because, and you can see how, like, with just those three, right, it's kind of tough, because you've got all the complicated dynamics between just those three, so having, like, I don't know, like an impartial Gondorian voice seems to be something uh, that he kind of wants, so there needs to be some other figure there, and he doesn't yet see him clearly, right? He's So he's he gets connected with Dal Amroth, but he's not even given a name. Um, after this, we get the, so that the first, the real birth of Imrahil's character is the elvish blood thing, right? There being elvish blood in the veins of that folk for the people of Nimradel dwelt once in that land long ago. Um, that's really interesting, right? So let's watch Prince Imrahil because... Um, you know why I find this so interesting? Notice, we haven't talked about this much. Notice whom Aragorn is not yet explicitly paralleling, right? Baron, right? Because you'll notice who doesn't exist, right? Arwen. Not yet exist. Arwen is not yet a glimmer in Elrond's eyes, right? Uh, Arwen, not part of the story. Um, uh, again, Eowyn briefly auditioned for the part of future Queen of Gondor. Um, you know, she like got a call back but didn't uh, get cast for the final part. And there has as yet been no casting for that part. After Eowyn, we have no glimmer of whom Aragorn might be marrying. That's not part of the story yet. So the idea that Aragorn is going to be the parallel to Baron, who is marrying the new Luthien, uh, that we are going to get, that the return of the king is going to culminate in the third and final union of the first and second uh, 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 born of the, of the children of Iluvatar, it's not there, right? Not a glimmer, um, not a hint, really, that that's going to be. So... Imrahil, not yet named, is half-elven, is the product of... So we're going to get the intermingling of elves and Gondorians predating the... uh, uh, predating the union of Aragorn with an elf. And I think that's kind of interesting, right? So that is another reason, as we kind of build up towards the advent of Arwen's character that I find the story, the backstory of the elvish blood of the of the princes of Dal Amroth to be particularly interesting. So, just a little note, let's watch for this, let's watch for this. be really interested to watch Imre Hill's character grow and see how that, uh, how that happens. It seems to me not highly non-coincidental 
that his character is going to start growing more and is going to get shoved back into a more prominent role. All those things that he just said that he doesn't do, right? We're going to get him speaking up in the council. We're going to get him carrying Faramir's body into Denethor uh, when Faramir is stricken down. We're going to get him accompanying Gandalf around the city when Gandalf is raising the hopes of everybody, um, uh, all the defenders of the city, right? We're going to get him coming out and leading uh, charges out into the battle. We're going to get him coming out and uh, uh, saving Eowyn's life, right? Uh, we're going to get all those things from Prince Imrahil. He's going to become a really important character. All of that stuff postdates these rumors of Elvish blood. As soon as he gets Elvish blood, yeah, now, right, he, he, uh, he becomes something. Um, so... That's kind of interesting. I really want to see how that grows. All right. Uh, sorry we didn't get to the Wozes. We'll get to the Wozes next time. I didn't actually have all that many slides. Uh, I had more slides, as I said, from the uh, first chapter than the second in our reading today. Uh, so we'll roll that into next time, and we'll do the Battle of Pelennor Field and see what happens next two chapters. As I recall, a little bit short anyway. So um, we will... Um, uh, we will keep going, right? We'll keep moving forward. Should be able to... Stay on target next time. So, um, and next week is normal. Yes, next week is normal. So, cool. All right. Thank you, everybody. And I will see you guys uh, next week. Don't forget, we are 24 hours away. 20. No, 24 hours away. We're 23 hours and 53 minutes away uh, from the deadline uh, of. Uh, Mythmoot registration. So register, come to Mythmoot because it's awesome and I can't wait to see you there. Thanks everybody. Bye now.